Good evening. Glad you guys made it out. Well, I'm not sure exactly what all we're going to cover the next few weeks. I know I want to get into the book of Romans, but a few things we'll probably do before we get into that. So today, we're going to be looking at Philemon. So if you want, you can turn to Philemon after Titus. For Hebrews, Philemon. And why don't we read it? It's a short letter. This is the only letter that Paul wrote that we have that was addressed to an individual. The other letters that Paul wrote were to churches, to groups of people, or uh, to pastors uh, like Timothy that were made uh, to be given to a group of people. But this was specifically to this one individual. So let's read it. And again, as we go through and read it, I want you to ask questions to yourself. Whenever I put together a, a talk and I'm going through a passage or a book, I always ask myself questions. The questions usually just kind of come up like, why do you say that? What does that mean? And those kinds of things. And sometimes I get the answers by looking. Sometimes I just get more questions. Uh, But let's read through it and uh, then talk about it. So Philemon, only one chapter, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God, my Father, as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. 
I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Father, we pray, Lord, as we look at this small letter that you would illuminate our understanding and our ability to see, Father, the things that are expressed in this short little letter. Father, may our hearts be open to all you have for us tonight. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just a little bit of history, I guess, as we write our step into this. Onesimus, who is mentioned a little bit later into this letter, was Philemon's one-time slave. And Paul is writing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Keep in mind the scenario and the time that this is taking place. Rome, the Roman Empire, has about 60 million slaves, okay? Slaves outnumber everyone. I mean, they're the majority, 60 million slaves. And so that's when this is being written, and that's the environment. Uh, A rebellion against a rebellion by those who were slaves was always in consideration by the Roman government. And so whenever there was a slave who was causing some kind of ruckus, they were quick to squash it. They did it forcefully, they did it quickly, and they did it in a way that would be noticed. And so people know that if they were going to try and start a revolt, it would be met with with force. And so that's a little bit of the scenario that it's in. But knowing that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon, knowing that Philemon was a Christian and that there was, as he says, a church that met in his home, verse 2, are there any questions that come up just in this? I want to hear what thoughts are there. Maybe answer your thoughts before I give you a mindful of mine. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he refers to himself as a prisoner? Mm-hmm. Was Paul in prison? Why? So, yeah, I think it's important to, again, understand contextually what's happening. Paul was basically under Roman guard, he was under their authority and basically a prisoner. Even though he had freedom to move about, he was the prisoner and he was a prisoner. He didn't believe of Rome, but of Christ because it was the work of Christ he was doing that he was now imprisoned. 
And so it's not being thought of as Jesus is holding me as a prisoner, but his work was being done for Christ, and so his reason for imprisonment was because of Christ. And so he considers that part of his process. Any other thoughts come up? So the whole idea of slavery, let's throw it on the table, okay? Slavery. Have you ever wondered why Christianity does not push to abolish slavery? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, at least this in the scripture. Because it was actually many Christians that saw, too, the abolition of slavery later on. But we don't see it in scripture here. And I think... It's important to understand that, you know, though we don't see it trying to abolish slavery at this stage, what it does do is change the class relationship that was taking place between people who were impoverished and people who had money. People who were impoverished usually were enslaved by those who had money. They actually worked for them. That was a different type of slavery. I know we think of slavery in terms of American history. And with you know movies like Twelve Years a Slave, you know, that thought of slavery is horrific. And there no doubt was horrific things that took place at this time. Whenever human beings own other human beings, it's not a beautiful thing. It's a bad thing. And so that frame of mind seems to come in, but there was a lot of economy that was based on this whole practice. And it could be that it wasn't presented as, we need to stop this because this was all they had known. Remember, Jesus himself was a slave, we forget that. He was under the Roman rule. Okay, so in that terms, he was a slave, but he sure didn't act like a slave, right? In that term that we think of, it again, in American history. We don't see those correlations, but he was still under the Roman rule. And the Roman ruled the nation of Israel as basically their own property. They could make them do what they wanted to. In other words, a very forceful hand that they had upon them. You know, when Paul talks about slavery in the brief times, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We can see an instance where Paul talks about slavery, and it's an interesting way that he does it, because again, it's not in a way that we normally would. In verse Five, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Strange. Obey your earthly master as you would Christ. This idea of, you know, with fear and with respect and with sincerity of heart. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slaves or free. And so Paul is trying to change the perspective of those who are enslaved, that they are actually 
enslaved by their commitment to Christ and not just a person. Again, this idea of slavery being what we see, it's like, well, why would I want to be enslaved to everyone? But the whole point is you belong to Christ first and foremost. If you please him with what you do, then it is going to also translate to the other person. And so even though Christianity did not try to abolish slavery as we see it, what it did abolish is this variation of class envy, of this variation of you know the rich and the poor, this unifying of human being to human being and treating them each with respect. And by doing this, it actually caused a greater change than any kind of you know, trying to overthrow the government rebellion could have. Because if they tried to, we're going to stop slavery, they would have been met with spears, swords, and it would have been bloody. But if you change how you think about every human being, and if you're free to serve people like you serve Christ, then it changes the dynamic. Because You can't change or chain a person's will. If a person belongs to Christ and does something because they want to honor God, how do you stop that? And what impression does that leave? Jesus said, if you're asked, you know, to carry a man's, you know, if a man asks you for his coat, give him your outer garment as well. If he asks you to go one mile, go with him two. And that was something that was used by the Roman soldiers. They could tell you to carry their equipment with them for one mile. And Jesus says, tell them you'll do it for two. Why would you do that? Because now I am choosing to do this. And it's saying, I'm not a slave to you, but what I am is a slave to God who cares about you. And so by doing this willingly, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. So now these Christians are known because they love one another and because they are being generous and because they're caring for each other's needs and because they take your stuff not just one mile but two miles and if you ask them for their coat they give you their shirt as well and all of a sudden they are known for this lavish love that is done freely and so god is dealing with the heart And the slavery that can take place first there in the heart. And he addresses Philemon as his fellow brother. The church did meet in homes. Now, originally they started meeting in synagogues. But the synagogues threw them out because they weren't going to be considered followers of Christ as well. And so they had to find a place to meet and they couldn't go rent a place because they were under a lot of persecution. So they would meet in homes. And Philemon's was one of the homes that was where the church was meeting at. And so 
they thought that Philemon actually his church might or the home. Well, actually, we'll get into some of this later. And so these people are meeting at the home and he talks to Philemon as a brother, a fellow worker. We're on the same level. And notice that he doesn't even get to Onesimus until later on. It's almost like he's he's buttering him up and he's just kind of setting the stage, right? I always thank God I remember you because I hear about your love for his holy people. Now remember, his holy people were also slaves, some of them. Maybe they weren't Philemon's slave. Maybe they were someone else's slave who also was there. And so you would go to a home where these believers in Christ would be and you would have people who were low-class slaves. You had people who were higher-class who owned slaves. You had people who were well-to-do. You might have Roman soldiers there with some old Hebrew rabbis and they were all meeting in this home together. And you start breaking down these barriers and, and you start seeing each other as brothers and sisters. And he appeals to Philemon because we hear about your love for God's holy people, your faith in the Lord. I thank God for you. I pray your partnership with us in faith by the effective and deepening. This is wonderful. I pray, verse 6, that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding in every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Philemon would have deeper understanding because of his partnership in faith. He would have deeper understanding because of how he gives to others. And so the man who knows the most of Christ isn't the person who knows the most intellectually. It's not the person who who does the most as far as reading or studying or praying. The person who actually knows Christ the most is the person who is serving God's people. And this is kind of how he's talking about him here in this place. Deepening your understanding in every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. You're effective by sharing these things with me. And he mentioned those things. You care for all the people in this. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, when he says the Lord's people, it's this whole mishmash of people. Smart people, educated, people who never had any education, can't even read, people who are just working again in labor, people who are scholars. They're all the Lord's people. And so you see this great evening out of these classes that's taking place under the name of Christ. And so he he presents everything to him in this way. And then he says in verse 8, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you what to do or what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Boy, is that a managerial verse or what? Is If you want to know how to be over people, appeal to love and not because you can make them. Notice in the beginning of this epistle, he doesn't say Paul an apostle like he does in the others. Why not? 
because he's not going to use his apostolic credentials to leverage Philemon. He's not trying to leverage him in that way. He didn't include that title. He didn't drop his name or his authority. Instead, he appeals to love. He wants Philemon to do this not because Paul is commanding. He wants Philemon to do it because Philemon loves and cares for Paul and for the Lord's people. Boy, what a great tool of understanding that is for every area of life. Parents, friendship, church relationships. How many churches lord over people and force them to do it because I'm over you, I'm the pastor, or I'm a deacon, and I have the ability. How many workplaces, you know, you're my, you're my employee, I have the power to do these things, so do it and shut up kind of attitude. Instead, what would happen if we appealed to them on the basis of love? How, many, how much more could we get in return if people did things because they did it out of love, right? I mean, that's really what you want to develop. And so Paul doesn't come to him heavy-handed. He says it's none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. And the first time we mention his name. I'm appealing you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And so we see that this relationship between Paul and Onesimus was one where Paul sees him as his spiritual son. In other words, he probably led Onesimus to faith. It's there in Rome where Paul is at. So Paul, Onesimus probably ran to Rome because that's a big city you can hide there. If he's running away from his master, I'm going to get away. He'll never find me in Rome, whatever the reason is. And somehow he comes to meet Paul. Maybe he was even in prison. He got arrested for something. Who knows? But he comes to faith, and Paul now considers him his own son while he was under this Roman rule. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful, both to you and to me. And that's a play on Anisimus' name. That's a tough one. His name means useful. Okay, so formerly he was useless. So useful was useless, but now he's become useful, both to you and to me. He is not only Anisimus by name, but he is now also Anisimus by nature. He wasn't just a useful person, now he is a useful person. His name doesn't just mean useful, he is useful, both to you and to me. And this made me think, do people change? Yeah. We, we hope so, right? I mean, that we're all here because we believe that. You know, there's a large part of this world that doesn't believe that people change. Well, you know, people just never change. And we believe that they can. 
And this is Paul saying that they do. This useful person ran away from you, was useless, but he really is useful. And again, he's giving credence to the fact that something has happened, that he has changed. Interesting story about Onesimus. There is a early church writer, Ignatius. He was a martyr, and he wrote some letters which still survive. We still have some of these letters. And he wrote them to different churches, and he wrote one into the church at Asia Minor. And he writes to the church at Ephesus. And in his first chapter to that church at Ephesus, he has much to say about their overseer and leader. And who do you think that overseer's name is? Onesimus. We don't know for sure, but could this Onesimus be the same one that Paul is talking about? He even uses in his writing some similar phrases that Paul used here, kind of capitalizing on his name, Onesimus by name, you know, where he said he makes himself useful, much to say about him by nature now he is useful and profitable to Christ. It could be that this runaway slave became, in years, the overseer and maybe pastor of the church that was there in Ephesus. Which would mean Philemon took him back and then let him go. A slave is property. A slave is valuable. If you let him go, you are losing your property. But what happens when this slave leaves and runs away? Your your property runs away, which is a weird thing. And then on his own will comes back to you makes himself available to you once again, and you see his usefulness for the kingdom of God of which you believe in and are part of, what do you do? Do you say, well, I'm sorry, I'd, I'd let you go, but you belong to me? Or now is there something bigger driving even you? Where... You say, no, go. You, you are useful to the kingdom of God. And what an amazing thing. I mean, I hope it's true because it's so cool. If it is, that this Onesimus who goes back is now released from his duties to Philemon and becomes an overseer at the church in Ephesus. Yeah. Yeah, one who chooses... Yeah, a bond slave would be someone who makes a decision, even when they're granted freedom or by freedom, that they still want to be in, in this person's, you know, service. Yeah, exactly. And so that would be a bond servant, someone who's committed to that person all the way through. And so here we see just an incredible picture of 
how Jesus changes people and how he changes the relationship between people and eliminates this class envy that is there by making them one. Paul, an apostle, doesn't appeal to Philemon as, I'm one of the heads of the church, you need to do what I say. He appeals to him as a brother in love. I want to appeal to you love. This is what I want for you, for Onesimus and He counts on Philemon doing what is right and even more. What if that even more meant you'll release him back to Paul's care that he could go on and then be an overseer at the church? Wow, how cool is that? But Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to keep this guy. He's useful. He knows, no, I need to send him back because this has to be done in a way that is clearly visible by everyone that this was Love and not because you were forced. It's more important that I send him back to you so that everyone sees this one who we all know was a slave, whether you think slavery is good or not, chose to come back. Can you imagine Onesimus, free, choosing to go back into a life of slavery only to find that his master is also a brother, and then releases him to go and do the service of God. And and so we see this incredible changing of stature that takes place in Christ, where Paul would say there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. Even throwing the male and female is a huge thing at this time. And so we see this incredible equalization that takes place in Christ because of what Jesus makes us to each other. He's sending him to you who is my very heart. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. He means the world to me, and I'm sending him to you. And he didn't want to do anything, verse 14, without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. There it is, that free will. You've got to want to. It's got to be love. It's got to be voluntary. I'm not forcing you to. I just want you to do what is right. And that is the key. Because we can force people to do things for a while until we can't force them anymore, right? Until they turn 18 or until, you know, they're out of our employment, until whatever it is. You can force them for a while, but you can't really force them forever. And you can try and oppress someone, but you can't control what's happening in their heart. And so he wants it to be in a voluntary way. And he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that he might, you might have him back forever. What do you think he means by that? Could be, right? Now you are both followers of Christ, and so you're going to be with each other forever. What else could it mean? Because it says you have him back. It almost is like you're getting him back, but what does it mean by forever? 
Why do you think he would say that? What if it's playing on kind of like what Nick was talking about, that bond servant, a one who chooses to be a slave? I choose to be with you. If he comes back voluntarily, maybe he's coming back forever. Coming back to him forever. Could mean any of those things. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Ooh. What do you think he's getting at here? Okay. To possibly offer freedom? Or to just view him differently? Right? It's like more than being a slave, even better than that, which is upping it, right? It's a quality. It's not, It's better than. It's not just greater than. It's of a quality. Better than a slave is a brother. Yeah, you see what following Christ did and becoming a part of Christ's body, what it did was it changed and it introduced a new relationship between people, one that was more important than whatever they were socioeconomically, and that was to make them family. It introduced this kind of you know, abolishment of all these other things. And so although we don't see a direct, you know, get rid of slavery, we see a direct command to love one another, which, guess what, gets rid of slavery. Because people would want to be slaves at this point because that was a good job. Not everyone to every person. There were good masters, there were bad masters. There were people who did well, there were people who didn't do well, depending on those things. But if you are told to love each other, whether you are a person who owns slaves or whether you are a slave, it changes the dynamic completely. And the whole point was if you change the heart, you change the person. And if you change the people, you will change everything. The reason Christianity became the dominant religion in Rome was because of this. Because they loved each other. It wasn't because they had a revolt. It wasn't because they, you know, had petitions. Let's make laws to make sure there's going to be no more idolatry in the temples. Let's abolish, you know, all the irreligious things that take place. No, it was just let's love people to death and they will see the goodness of God and it will change the dynamic between them. I wonder sometimes, you know, when we try to force things by laws, what happens? I was talking to someone a while back, and I asked, might have been my brother, or might have been a couple of people, does anyone remember Jerry Farwell and the moral majority? Do you think the moral majority did harm to the cause of Christ, or do you think it benefited the cause of Christ? Have more people come to know Christ and been aware of Christ through the moral majority, or has it pushed more people away? Interesting. And no one does well when they're being coerced, right? You will pray in school. Oh, no, I won't. You will do this. We are going to make it a law and mandate these things. Now, 
praying in school is a great thing, but you're going to make it a law? Or you're going to keep it from, you know, when you start coercing things, you start getting people pushing back. And sometimes I think we can think that we're going to legislate our way into the people's hearts, and it just doesn't work that way. Now, if people's hearts change, guess what? Usually the things follow suit. That's what happened with slavery. Too many people said, this isn't right. These are my brothers, and we can't treat people this way. And all those who said, oh, no, they're not people because they're of this ethnicity and, you know, those things. Well, once that changes in the heart, I'm not going to tolerate that behavior. And I'm going to stop these things from happening. Why? Because the majority of people don't see this that way any longer. And so changing the heart is what changes a country, not changing the laws. And if we change people's hearts, everything else will follow suit. But we start focusing on the laws, and I think we start losing the battle. And so he wants to have him as a dear brother, as a brother in the Lord. And verse 17 says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Paul the Apostle talking about a slave, saying, welcome him as you would me. Important stuff taking place here. Important stuff. Beautiful stuff. Welcome him as you would me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, which means he might have been a thief, he might have stole some things when he left, took the candelabras, the fine china, you know, whatever it is, and ran away. If he owes you anything, charge it to me. And then almost tongue-in-cheek, he says, I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And it really is meant to be kind of tongue-in-cheek. Won't you let me make some profit off you now? Okay, with the affectionate, you know, kind of just smile on his face, Paul's telling him, hey, Philemon, you got a lot out of me. Let me get something out of you now. You owe me your own soul. Hey, let me get, pay it back. Accept my brother, as you would me. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Confident of your obedience. There is this amazing confidence that we see Paul has in all these letters, even when he writes to the church at Corinth. He's confident in the Lord. You know, Philippians 1 6, confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. There is this confidence that takes place. And I think it's important that we have confidence that God is going to work in the hearts of people so that we don't feel that we have to make sure they do everything. It's, you know, trying to prevent, you know, it's sin management. Well, let's build a high enough fence so that they can't sin. We'll make enough rules and regulations so that they won't be able to do something wrong. And it doesn't matter how high you build that fence. If they want to get out, they will. 
you know, a large church has rules. If you're going to work at this church, they have a list of rules of what you can and can't do. Because they're trying to prevent legal problems, really. But they're also trying to, you know, stop people from doing these things. And so they don't allow them to smoke. They don't allow them to drink. They're not, they're not allowed, you know, men aren't allowed to text women if they're not their wives. They're not allowed to do any kind of instant messaging or things like that because they're trying to prevent affairs. And it's like, okay, we know what you're trying to do. But guess what? People still go out and drink. People still have affairs, even when you put all these things in progress or in, in play, place. Why? Because their hearts want to. But Paul says, I'm confident in Christ that you're going to do what's right and even more. He's going to give them freedom, and that freedom might cause them to make bad choices or might allow them to make bad choice. It won't cause them. It might give them the freedom to make a stupid choice. But Paul has confidence. Even if you make a stupid choice, you're going to end up turning and making the right one. I have confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I have confidence that the Spirit of God is going to work in the hearts of people and draw them to himself. I am confident that God is going to continue speaking to you, working in your life, wooing you to himself. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're in, God can still do a work because we believe God changes people. We believe that God can make us into new creations and we might have a lot of momentum heading the wrong way and it might take a while before those brakes stop. It might take years before we actually stop and then say, okay, I'm going to turn around. But I am confident in your obedience, knowing that you'll do this and even more. Sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Have confidence in God when we see people doing things they do okay and we want to fix it at least i do okay i'm going to fix that let me tell you what you're doing wrong let me build the fence a little higher let me sin manage you for a while make you stop and then you find out they still have to choose to do what's right one more thing prepare a guest room for me verse 22 because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. There's no record that that ever happened. But again, it's just a kind gesture. You know what? I know that I'm welcome in your home, and I hope to be with you. And so it's just kind of a warming thing. And he gives his greeting. The people, Mark, Luke, we recognize those names, um, others that were there in the Gospels. The Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think it's interesting. This letter, why would it make it into the scriptures? There's no combating heresy that takes place in here. There's no doctrinal foundations that are being established. It's a letter to a guy about another guy. Why is it in the scripture? I just think that's interesting. Maybe it's because of who Onesimus became. And so it started becoming a part of Paul's writings because, hey, did you guys hear about what happened to Onesimus? 
yeah, he was the slave of Philemon. He ran away, and then he went back, and then Philemon released him, and now he's overseeing the church in Ephesus. Maybe it was just for that, so that people would know about this. I mean, Paul's letters were made at Ephesus, for the most part, most of the ones that he wrote. It was about the turn of the century, and that would have been when Onesimus would have been the overseer there in Ephesus. And maybe instead of, he insisted that this letter be included because he wanted everyone to know how God could take a slave and make him into a leader. This would be a wonderful thought. And so thus ends Philemon. Any questions on this book or any thoughts just as we conclude it? Quiet group here. Let's pray. Lord Father, there's so many beautiful things that jump out in this book. There are so many endearing things that we see kind of behind the scenes as we learn about what faith in Christ does just in the hearts of people. As Paul just talks to Philemon, we see the influence that you've made on everyone involved, on Paul, who doesn't use his authority, what he sees and expects from Philemon, who is someone who refreshes Paul's heart by serving the people of faith, and by Onesimus, a person who ran away to gain freedom, goes back because he is already free. Lord, what beautiful illustrations these are to us about what it means to be a follower of Christ, about how we are supposed to treat each other and see each other. Lord, your words are so prominent throughout this that if we love God, that we will love our brother as well. That if we belong to you, then we are here for each other. And Lord, I pray that we would take hold of this truth. Lord, that we would not try and place ourselves above others or see ourselves as more important, but in loneliness of mind like Christ, we would esteem others more important than even ourselves, no matter who they are, no matter what class they are in, no matter what ethnicity they are. Lord, whether they are male or female or people of wealth or people of poverty, Lord, might we love them as you do. We thank you for this time, Lord. Bless Everyone here, I praise, we ponder these things in Jesus' name. Amen.